Hello and welcome to Pod Rocket. Today we're here with John Cooperman, who's a developer advocate at Cloudflare. Uh, how are you, John? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited for this episode. Frankly, um, I'm I've been a big fan of Cloudflare's products for years. Um, I use the I mean, I use like the basic DNS and those kind of things for pretty much every website I launch. I've also used Workers and and uh, some of those uh, newer products as well. So. What I'm really excited to do today is to maybe quickly go through kind of the full product suite just to kind of understand the full gamut of, of products that Cloudflare provides since I I don't follow follow the news particularly in terms of what Cloudflare is producing. So I feel like I'm going to learn about some new products I don't even know about. Um, and then we can maybe talk in more depth about some of the areas you work on specifically. Yeah, that sounds great to me. Uh, so maybe we could start at the top. I, I think Cloudflare, was DNS the first product Cloudflare released or certainly early on? Or yeah. curious, like, where did Cloudflare start? Yeah, I think that they, um, I think they started with a lot of like security stuff. Um, and so they were like starting off with like anti-spam. But as far as um, kind of flagship products, I think DNS and CDN have become like two of their like early out the gate. Um, you know, those are things that they were very well known four years ago. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good point about the security. Like I remember early, always on the website there's like a button that says, Are you under attack? We can yeah. help. So if you're getting like a DDoS attack or something, I imagine Cloudflare can step in and help. Yeah, okay. I think that's like a thing. I'm trying to think because you know, I, I joined a few only a few months ago, but I was trying to think of like my image of like core products were definitely like always use the CDN, always know that they're there for DDoS attacks. And then I also know that they do a lot of like cutting edge stuff when it comes to like application firewalls or security rules, stuff like that. I think that they're like very security minded too. So yeah, I'd love to, I'd have to start with any of those. Yeah. Um, maybe we could start with, with the DNS CDN, like what's special about cloud, you know, there's a lot of DNS and CDN providers. So what's special about Cloudflare's functionality there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a few things like <clears throat> there's a few products we offer, like we just became an official domain registrar a few months ago. Um, I do think that using us, if you're already using our toolkit, makes a ton of sense using us as a domain registrar. But at the end of the day, I think with the domain service, we're providing what what other folks do. Um, when it comes to our CDN or like our 1.1.1.1, which is our uh, DNS registry, there's some really special stuff that we do there. Um, the CNN for CDN, for example, like we have a lot of locations, like we're well over 200 locations. Um, we've got like some cool things. Like I think if you go to the like, workers.cloudflare.com website there's if you scroll down there's a little button you can click to see how fast your like return data is from the closest cdn node um and it's a really fast and we're talking like sub 100 milliseconds a lot of times so we have locations like all over um we also are a company that really benefits like the like almost like a snowball effect so the more customers we get on our free tier stuff like our cdn and things like that the more we can analyze things like traffic patterns and we can come up with some really cool tools, which I'd like to talk about later, things like uh, Argo smart routing and things like that. Um, so yeah, for the CDN, I think A, the number of points of presence that we have, and then B, um, the ability to, as we get more and more traffic, to analyze it anonymously and try to optimize it. I think that's like a big thing that we offer there. Uh, similarly with 1.1.1.1, which is like our domain um, our DNS registry. Um, so for example, you can go get a free product called Cloudflare Warp. You can put it on your phone or your computer and it should just sit there behind the scenes. But 
it's very cool because it's it's really fast. So your request should just load faster. That's all internet requests. Uh, and it's fully encrypted. So there have been a lot of articles over the past few years about like DNS resolvers harvesting data or selling data or things like that. So we take a very like security first uh, approach to those things. So I think those are the kind of security backed encrypted side. And then also that we're sort of like the bigger biggest player in the game as far as like points of presence goes like there there really is a big uh, like kind of roi there when you get these like 50 millisecond or like you know 100 millisecond response times right and you know i guess a lot of people they kind of by default will use the cdn that's part of their cloud provider whether it's amazon google microsoft but are there advantages to not having a cdn that's hosted by the same provider as your your kind of main cloud infrastructure? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I I think my gut feeling says probably to just go with your current provider in a lot of cases, just because of ease of use, right? Like if you're already on, yeah, Amazon and you have that offering. I, I do think that there's truth to the idea that, you know, like having, um, having like a disconnect or like having a separation of concerns there could be good. But I think all of us are at the point where we have so many kind of points of presence that you're not, you're probably not looking at a CDN level outage uh, from any of these companies. So I think you should probably feel free to stick to whatever your hosting provider is, um, unless some of the more advanced features um, like tiered caching or Argo smart routing really appeal to you because those are kind of Cloudflare exclusive features. Um, which are more like advanced performance concepts. You mentioned Argo smart routing before, something you're you're excited about. So, uh, what 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 is that? Yeah, these are so these are like these are some of the coolest things for me. So, like earlier, I was talking about this kind of snowball effect, where like the more traffic we get, the more we can analyze patterns and everything like that. So, with traditional internet, you know, like if you do a ping of Google.com. Uh, you know, the internet routes that packet through, like efficiently through to one of Google's data centers and back. And the way that they optimize efficiency um, is fewest number of routes. You know, they're trying to get you from A to B with the fewest number of steps. And probably nine times out of 10, that's like the perfect thing to do. It's like exactly what you would want to do. But we see this happen all the time where like one very important, like, you know, of these like centralized internet or like centralized data warehouse locations will start being under too much um, pressure or they'll start going slow or they'll have an outage, something like that. And then we'll see this like very like observable kind of traffic backup where everybody's trying to route through, you know, this, this place in North Carolina and it's going slow. And so even though it's still the fewest number of hops to Google, there are inarguably faster ways to get there going around this. And so what Argo smart routing does is it is sort of like analyzing all of the network traffic that goes through our network. Um, and it basically, I think the simplistic way of saying is like the internet does fewest number of hops. Argo does fewest number of hops, unless we suspect that we can get you there faster. Um, and so as we detect like, oh, there's a real slowdown in this one node, we can start routing traffic around it. So even though you might get one or two more hops, we're still giving you a lot faster, you know, time to first bite resolving those traffic requests. So is that like just looking at nodes within the Cloudflare network or does it also look at what are what are the underlying providers serving a given asset that Cloudflare is is caching or, or kind of providing the CDN layer for? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think like the easy answer is it's it's really just looking at our nodes. Like we're only able to really observe like our nodes and where things are going faster or slower. Um, but the, our, those nodes are located at big data centers, right? That that serve a lot of traffic. So I think that if our 
you know, like, you know, something in North Carolina is going slowly, there's a really good chance that there's something going on in that data center. So it would apply to everybody. But our metrics are only run on stuff that goes through our network. Got it. But basically, this is like, you know, let's say I'm using Cloudflare to cache and provide CDN for my images. When one of my clients or one of my users requests an image, you know, normally it might use the data center closest to them. But if that data right. center is under load, it'll use a different data center. to Exactly. Yeah, they don't have to be customers. They could just be users of your app to get that benefit. Got it. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I know Cloudflare, I've seen there's kind of some features that have been coming out th that on the subject of images can automatically optimize images, can automatically use WebP format, which is something that's kind of new and you know a lot of excitement around that. So can you talk some more about ways that the Cloudflare CDN adds intelligence on top of like just serving the same asset faster. Yeah, yeah, I love that stuff. So yeah, it's for me, what's really interesting is like there was this, I don't want to like dra dra dramatize it or whatever, but there was like this interesting thing where like, you know, these browsers had these different standards and things were getting better, but we were still serving, you know, giant bundles or unminified, unconcatenated files, like all this performance stuff was going wrong. And so I think a lot of different companies tried to move into this space in different ways. And I think that, I don't want to say we got lucky. I'm sure it was intentional at the leadership level, but I think that coming in at the DNS level was a really smart move for Cloudflare. So for example, like there are a lot of really cool command line tools, whatever um, code you're writing that will do these things like build steps, right? Smart build steps where they'll minify, they'll concatenate all this stuff. But I think that us being at this DNS level has led to this really cool experience where you can put your just regular website. It can be completely un, uh, you know, optimized. And then you can go to our dashboard and I always describe it like a shopping list sometimes where you can go through and be like, I would like you to, you know, minify my JavaScript. Like, oh yeah, you should totally optimize all my images. Like stuff like this is really cool. So I think one way I think about it is, you know, if you have a really good tech stack, a really good build pipeline, you probably run these scripts locally or like on the build step in GitHub that will do a lot of stuff, right? They'll like, they'll minify, they'll dead code eliminate, maybe they'll optimize images and stick them in a cache. You know, they'll do all this heavy lifting stuff which is great. Uh, one downside to that is it requires like quite a bit of know-how and time to get that all working with your current stack. And so I think Cloudflare is providing the same solutions, but in a really novel way where you can just upload you can, a super normal node or like HTML, CSS website. You don't have to, like my personal site does no um, minification or concatenating files or image optimization. I just stick everything raw up there. Uh, and then I just use the Cloudflare services to go ahead and like do that. And so then if you hit my website, you'll see very well optimized, minified, concatenated and image optimized stuff. But for images in particular, yeah, we're always like messing. They've gone through a lot, like the browser standards have gotten really good. So we've got like AVIF and WebP formats. Um, we have the ability to do lossy or lossless uh, image optimization, depending on you know where you're using the images. Um, and we also have some really cool like image caching where we can we can resize images on the fly and cache those resized images. So we have a lot of really cool tools that you can just go in the dashboard and uh, and play around with. Yeah, that, I mean, that's all pretty awesome. And the way I've heard it described is that, t tell me if this makes sense to you, like essentially when you're using Cloudflare for your DNS, um, or, or I, I guess rather for your, uh, yeah, for your DNS, I guess, like you're kind of, allowing Cloudflare to man in the middle your website and then do like useful things. 
So yeah, you, you, like Cloudflare is able to kind of yes yeah, sit in the middle. You know, normally man in the middle is a bad thing, but this is a, a a good example where it's you know providing value and uh, optimizing your images or or caching or doing CDN. Yeah, I think it's just I really see it as like after all the dust settled, like a really good abstraction point, like as opposed to like build tools or like CI tools or like browser updates for your users. Like we, we picked this abstraction point, which is DNS. And I think that's like paying off really well for us right now, where we like, we sort of view it as like your, we call it like being like orange clouded, like you're in, like once your website is on DNS fully, there's like all of this stuff we can do. It's just a really nice point to sit at where we can, you know, we can optimize, we can get you back and analytics, we can update your images, we can push all your files, we can give you like custom caching rules, like, there's just so much you can do that's like, dashboard click button, as opposed to um, with other frameworks, I think it would have to be like, oh, go find a new NPM module, you know, install it, put it in your GitHub CI pipeline, you know, just a little bit more hands on for the same effect. So yeah, I think it's a really nice point. Um, and I, I also think it's nice, because there's nothing ever becomes Cloudflare specific about your app itself, right? Like your app, like my website will just stay just a ball of HTML, CSS and JavaScript. That's like all it is. So if I wanted to move it to another platform, I would, of course I'd lose those Cloudflare like one click optimizations, but nothing gets embedded into your code that becomes like Cloudflare specific. It's just stuff we provide on top. Yeah, no, I mean, totally see all the benefits there. I guess playing devil's advocate, like, by having a lot of these things be checkboxes or configurations in the Cloudflare dashboard, they're not subject to version control or code reviews or some of the kind of team workflows that um, you know a larger development team is typically used to. So what what is kind of recommended by Cloudflare in terms of best practices for yeah. auditability and uh, you know code review or or yeah, that's a great question. Review. Yeah. I think we try to look about it in ways of like, we kind of mark the danger level of each service that we're offering here. So like one way that we do it is like what things we mark is like beta versus GA versus default on. Those would be like kind of the three steps. So like when we, like for one example, like we offer Brotly support. Uh, for those that don't know, like there are ways that you can compress files on your server that the browser can decompress. So you send less bytes over the wire. So we have like gzip for a long time. Now we have Brotly. Um, Broadly support is considered like basically a hundred percent safe, like turning on Broadly support should not ever break anything. So when you make a new, like using our Cloudflare pages product, uh, when you make a new page, we just by default serve everything over Broadly. Uh, and you can go turn it to gzip if you'd like, but that one we have decided is like anyone at your company should be able to just click that on. You should see savings. It should never take anything down. Uh, then we have other products. Like we have a really cool product called uh, rocket loader, which is pretty advanced. It basically tries to, um, it rewrites all of your script tags as like script type rocket loader. So the browser doesn't run them, tries to load in all your HTML and CSS. And then only when that's done, start running the, the JavaScript in an attempt to really optimize your site, especially if you have a bunch of ads or things running in JavaScript that aren't required. However, I'm sure you can imagine immediately yeah. that that could totally break. What things, could right? go like wrong? On, right. And yeah. so for that one, we, we would never turn that on by default. We also have a bunch of warnings on it about how to kind of test and things like that. And we provide some cool performance metrics where we can load your site with both rocket loader on and rocket loader off. So you can kind of see some of the differences. So I think we re I think the, the simple answer is we try to cover that in the dashboard via, is this just automatically on? 
is it off, but it's easy to turn on? Or is it off with some warnings and some blog posts that we recommend you reading before you turn it on? Uh, that kind of thing. Got it. Makes sense. Um, let's talk about uh, Cloudflare workers, because I feel like one of the, the most powerful or one of what I think are the most powerful tools I've used in the Cloudflare platform. Um, just in, in case anyone hasn't you know, used workers or isn't familiar, could you give us a quick introduction to what are workers? What can you do with them? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. So yeah, let me, I hope I don't go back too far here, but like basically you go back like 10 years ago or whatever, and we were all sort of building and deploying apps the same way where we would, um, you know, find a VPS provider, um, like, you know, like Linode or, or Dreamhost or I don't know, something like that. And we would, we would get a machine or maybe a couple machines, these are virtual machines, but they're still, so you're like, oh, I need one maybe in this location, one in the US, one in Europe, you know, there's all these things you're like thinking about all the time. And so you get these machines and you pay by the memory and the CPU and all this stuff. And then you deploy your code to the machines. And then if your site gets really popular, uh, like it's too much for a machine, then you got to get more. And then you have to get like a load balancer and that load balancer will have to uh, kind of help navigate, like where send traffic to the one that can take it, the fastest one. And so it was like this, you know, it was a big thing. Like I always remember at my first jobs that, there were a lot of folks in charge of very important tasks here with like making sure that our servers, you know, stay up, don't crash. There's also updates to think about, like a huge thing. Like, so you get like 10 servers and they're running like Ubuntu or, you know, whatever on it. And somebody's going to have to go in or write scripts that will go in and, you know, deploy these updates. And then we tried to like modernize a lot of that with like this, like code as config or like whatever they call it, config as code, I think. So we had like these cool ways with like Docker and things like that, where you could just like have one Docker file that you would send to all 10 of your machines. So it got a lot better there. Um, but you're still, there's like all this stuff, right? Like I think back 10 years ago, if somebody asked you to build a production service, like you should be nervous, right? Cause it's like, oh, like how many servers do we need and where should they be? And who's gonna be on call and who's gonna be like all this stuff, right? And so Amazon sort of led the way with this kind of like serverless revolution where um, which I really just didn't understand at first, but the basic idea was that they tried to just take away a lot of those decisions. Uh, and so you could write each kind of, you know, if you had like an express JS app back in the day and it had like 10 routes in the main file that was like, you know, get slash, get, you know, list, get, you know, all this stuff. You would write each one of those things as a separate function and you would deploy all 10 of those to Amazon, uh, with via AWS. And now they can take care of a lot of it for you. You don't have to worry about operating system. You don't have to worry about updates. You don't have to worry about paying too much because you just pay for what you use, you know, all this great stuff. And so for folks who were doing that, it really made the job like a hundred times easier where it was like, oh, cool. Like we just need to make sure that our functions are working well and, and they go up. So that was kind of like the preface of it. And then since then, all of these other companies have come up with like really cool ways of offering serverless packages that compete with Amazon in some way. So Amazon's is like, you still pick a data center. Um, so you go to Amazon and you pick like, oh, US East or whatever. And then, um, you know, you upload your function or whatever. And then the way that they handle it is that they have these virtual machines. So they have what, I don't know if folks have heard of like hot starts, cold starts with these serverless functions before where if it's been too long and the VM shuts off and somebody hits it, then the VM has to like spin up again. And so that's like a cold start that takes a while. Um, Similarly, when you get really big and you want to distribute it amongst locations, you need to use more AWS services where you're like, oh, I'm going to get some US East and then some US West, and then I'm going to like kind of load balance between. Um, and so then at the same time, Fastly, or at the same time later, Fastly came out with this really cool idea, which is they they run like a WebAssembly basically only VM. 
Um, and so they're still doing the VMs like uh, Amazon is, but they're lightning fast. They're like super, super, super quick cold starts. Um, so you can do all this really cool stuff there with like, um, yeah, as long as you can write something that compiles down to WebAssembly, then you can deploy it to Fastly and you'll get these like really cool effects. So then Cloudflare's com com competitive approach went differently. Um, we decided that we were going to do um, like this edge first, basically. So instead of when you go to Amazon, you pick US East, we don't get, we abstract that away as well. So if you think like serverless in general abstracted away, like OS and version updates, number of machines, but then Cloudflare serverless, which is workers, also abstracts away location that you don't, you don't think about things like where you're going to put it. You just write your code and then we can do a lot of really cool optimizations where we, like I think one simple way of thinking about it is we take your code and we put it at all like 200 plus of our data centers. So it's always really, really close to your users. Um, and so again, so it's like the serverless offering, you write your functions, we support JavaScript, TypeScript, and then we also support WebAssembly. So anything you could write Python and compile it down or Go and compile it down. Um, and so, yeah, so we have this cool offering where it abstracts even further, where you just don't worry about where the thing is gonna go. It just goes everywhere. Um, and so you get these really high performance um, serverless framework. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that we also went different with the VM approach. We don't do a VM approach where you spin up a VM for each serverless function. We use uh, Chrome's V8, which is the engine behind Google Chrome. And V8 offers this concept of isolates where you can run code in the one VM that stays on all the time. Each function runs in a V8 isolate. Uh, and so isolates are protected from each other where they can't uh, interfere or they can't share or steal memory or anything like that. But it's a different approach where we don't have cold starts because our VM is never off. We just have this one big Google Google V8 VM that runs your code in separate isolates. It, this is maybe getting really in the weeds, but I'm just curious, is there is there like one V8 VM per per web, per like site on Cloudflare per customer or are there is it kind of shared across multi-tenants? That's a really good question. I assume it has to be multi-tenant somehow, but I actually don't I don't offhand know the answer. I, I assume there's no way that there's just one like instance per data center or whatever, yeah. but I'm not sure about how that code works, like figuring out which one you, you go to or like, you know, how you get uh, prioritized. I'm not sure on that. Are, are those isolates like what underpin individual tabs in like a browser that's based on? Uh, yeah, and I also think they're the same thing that would work for like your web workers and things like that. I think that like one right. of the reasons that we were called workers is because it, it uses like a lot of the same like protection, security protections that, uh, you would get when you would make a new worker in your browser. And when you're writing this JavaScript code that's running, you know, that's running as a um, worker, what APIs do you have access to in in yeah. terms of like what what is the kind of format of a request that comes in for a worker to process? What does it have to spit out? How does that work? Yeah, that's an awesome question because this is one of the things that tripped me up forever. Where I was like, okay, I get that serverless is cool, but it kind of scares me. Like, I don't know what I'm what I'm doing. So. Yeah, like all of our stuff is based around the like uh, the fetch spec, the actual like MDN, like the actual W3 fetch spec. So what you get is a request object and what you must return is a response object. Um, and so it really is like our initial syntax was uh, at event listener syntax. So you would do like at event listener and you could listen to like a fetch or a schedule event, which is like our cron job thing. And that fetch would receive a request object. And then it's exactly like you're on the web or in node or anything you can do like set headers, you can go async away, go get data, you know, stuff like that. But the primitives that you're working with there are going to be request response from the Fetch API. Um, and then if you go to workers.cloudflare.com, we also have a lot of other APIs that we support 
Um, and so like alongside with, uh, you know, just doing the normal stuff, like your fetch, um, request response, we also have like a lot of stuff like, um, trying to think now we have like the kind of crypto APIs we have like, um, uh, uh, encoding stuff. We have the ca like cash, like the web cache stuff that you would expect. We have WebSocket support. Um, so a lot of other things like that, but it is a little bit of a game where, I think one thing to know right away is that, you know, these workers are not Node. They're not like a full Node.js environment. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily be able to take like a gigantic application with all these dependencies. Like um, you, you would run into areas where you would need a polyfill, something like that. Um, but when you're writing your own ones, you get a very familiar, like we, we only add things that are spec compliant. Um, but it is like a constant mission for us to find popular, you know, specs that people want to be using uh, and then find ways of supporting those. And what are some of the typical use cases you see for workers? Yeah. So I think one of the most common ones I've ever seen is like simply uh, adding headers. So like, for example, like um, one of our products that's really cool, we have this like bot management product. And what it does is it uses all of this like uh, machine learning and all of this data to take each request and kind of analyze it and give it a score, zero to 100, how likely we think it, it is a bot. So you can then have full control of what you do with that. Like you could use our our CAPTCHA and you could say, oh, if it's over 70% likely, give it a CAPTCHA. I don't, you know, I don't want that. Or you could just block it. Be like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to mess with that. So one way, like, but then the question is, well, how do you get that data on the client side? Um, and so one really simple worker, like say you're using bot management, um, you would take in each request, you would grab the bot score from the bot API, and then you would append a new header that was like, you know, add a new header, Cloudflare bot score, and then stick the score on. Um, another way is like, if you wanted to add like a security header, like you wanted to add, um, I'm trying to think of, or like a cores header, anything like that. Like workers would be a really good way of just like proxying a request, adding some headers to it, and then returning the request. We also, uh, what I'd love to get into is we have their, our new sort of move is into like stateful stuff, um, which is another really good chance to use workers. Now that we offer like a key value store and our new product durable objects can build way more robust things with workers. Yeah, so I think yeah, those are newer. I think I did, you know, I, I was doing some work with workers about a year ago, and I think key maybe it's more than that. Two years ago, key value was kind of just coming out, but um, I think that was the only mechanism for for state and workers. So it sounds like there's more now. So can you tell us a bit about some of those mechanisms, and then what can you do if you have stateful workers that you couldn't previously do? Yeah. Yeah, so you've kind of got three options. Like you can you can use either of our two things, which are the key value store or the durable objects, um, or like we're constantly adding better and better support to connect with your real databases. If you just have, like you know, you've got some data in MySQL somewhere. Um, so on the database side, we're always working on our open source adapters for databases, and we're really trying to improve that story over the next year, um, making it easier and easier to just use your real data. Um, and so for that stuff, um, yeah, look at our database adapters, uh, and then you can just do your, you know, whatever you were planning on doing with like a non-serverless thing, you can just connect to your data store. Um, with KV and durable objects, those are things that we offer in our edge network. So KV, they're really similar, which I think it's a little bit confusing, but like the key value store is um, eventually consistent. Uh, and you can store, you know, any key, any string key and any string value. So it'd be very similar if you've used like Redis or like, I know a lot of companies have like these key value stores. So one example that you could do with it is you could have like a blog, like a, I don't know, like an 11T or like a Jekyll or whatever blog. 
And on the build command, you know, it takes all your markdown and generates HTML. So then you could just have a worker that would take each HTML file and it would just stick it in a key value store with like a path, like, you know, my first post and then the value would be the HTML. And then you could just build a worker that intercepts all routes, pulls the right one out of the key value store and serves that. And boom, you have like, you know, a stateful blog just on a single worker. Um, the issue with the key value store, like I said, is eventually consistent. So that key value store is at all like 250 or whatever of our data centers. So if, if like you're looking at my blog and I update it with a new push, you are not going to necessarily get it on the read for like maybe even up to 30 seconds as it propagates like everywhere. So it's really good for some things. Like when I update my blog, I don't need that to be in real time. Uh, it would not work for other things like a chat application or like Google Docs commenting or collaboration. Um, and so that's kind of, if you, if you have something that's just simple reads and writes, KV is free. Uh, it works really simple API, really easy to use. Like I've used it for sticking all sorts of stuff like blogs or metadata or anything like that. When you get into the need for fast reads or like consistency, that's our durable objects offering. And durable objects is really cool. This is probably like the thing I'm going to work the most on in the next quarter, um, is like documentation and examples for durable objects. Cause I feel like they're very powerful, but they're essentially just a simple JavaScript object where you can put anything that you can put in JavaScript state. So sets, maps, objects, arrays, strings, anything like that. Um, but, but it will come with some special APIs, including like reading and writing to disk uh, while also keeping stuff in memory. And so this would be a really good thing if you wanted to build like collaboration or chat, anything real-time communication, stuff like that, uh, that would also write to disk. Um, and the nifty thing that I love, so the key value store goes in all like 250 of our data centers, which is why it takes a while. The durable object is like this magical creature. So there's only one of them, right? It's like a singleton. And what it does is it it is moved around our CDN based on where the most requests are coming from. So it's like this single consistent, uh, you can always read and get fresh data from it. And then the thing itself sort of magically behind the scenes moves around to get closer to whoever is reading from it. So it provides this really cool experience for building like stateful, but also like lightning fast applications. And uh, this is maybe a silly question, but like in this context of serverless with, with durable objects, like what is the difference between keeping something in memory versus writing it to disk? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's like a few, uh, there, there's always going to be latency with the writing to disk, like for sure. Um, and so I think it really is like the whole JavaScript, the durable object API is async. Uh, so you could just wait on it to be like, you, if you do like um, a durable object that does like await this.storage.get uh, messages, something like that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Like the client will just wait, um, you know, an extra few milliseconds as that reads from disk. But the API that I've been using the most is just to have like two variables in my durable object. You know, one is the, the memory one. Uh, and then on writes, I just write the memory to disk. And then if the memory one doesn't exist, like the durable object has shut down, then I read into it from disk. So that's kind of the, the method I've been going with because it just shaves a little bit of that time when people go to read to just be able to immediately return it from memory. Um, but there, it's still really fast no matter what. But I would say if you're building something that's like super time sensitive, like chat, uh, you would just want to keep a copy of uh, the state in memory at all times. Got it. And I think, so we've, we've kind of talked about workers, which, um, you know, involve writing JavaScript code. I'm curious, and, and then we've also talked about durable objects, which is starting to kind of approximate a database. So I'm curious when it comes to the code you write in workers, is there tooling to put that code in, in Git or whatever version control you're using 
what does testing look like in terms of writing that worker code? Um, and then the third question is around kind of some of the similar like uh, software engineering concepts when it comes to a database, like migrations and schemas. Like, um, yeah, let, let's kind of yeah, talk those are all those. great. Yeah, <laughs> let me know if I forget one as I go. But yeah, those are awesome questions. So originally, I think we had this idea since our network's so fast and deploys are so quick that we could maybe skip a lot of these like local dev or testing environments because you can just like grab a new domain name and deploy it. And I think as we go further and further, we realize there's just a big need for this kind of stuff. So we have a lot of really exciting things. So we just announced a new version of our CLI, which is called Wrangler. Um, the new version has like really cool built-in stuff where you can, it's super fun. Um, basically you like start your app with like your workers and your durable objects. And then you can have like single button keys to toggle between, I want, move it to the edge and give me a link to that edge or, okay, move it back locally. And then so I can run my tests against it locally. Um, so we use an open source product called Miniflare, um, which kind of like replicates the edge experience locally. It doesn't have everything, but it mocks what it can. Um, so Miniflare, which is in Wrangler too, is like the great answer to like how to do tests, local development, stuff like that. So we also have this awesome product called Argo Tunnel which is sort of like a competitor to uh, Ngrok, which is you take your local app and then it exposes a secure, unique URL. So that's like another cool way we do things is we'll build something, run our tests via Miniflare, and then we'll generate a unique URL for it locally and have our, our coworkers test it out. Um, so yeah, I think as far as like the kind of like testing goes, we also have the option for environments. So you can have like a stage, a pre-prod and a prod environment. So you can deploy it to you know, those much like a traditional app uh, is deployed. Um, sorry, I'm trying to remember all of your questions. That was like testing, uh, deploy, oh, migrations. You're talking about like data migrations, right? Like how you would handle yeah. like database stuff. So we kind of have two options there. Again, uh, the high level is that we have like this a config file that goes in all workers. So it's called wrangler.toml. Um, and as you add key value or durable objects, it go, that goes in there too. Um, so we do have opportunities for like, you can change the version of your durable object, which will mean on the next deploy, it'll get rid of all that data and start with new state. Whereas if you keep the same version, you can update the application code while keeping the data. So we do offer things like that. I do think though that long-term, we're not trying to be your giant MySQL database. So, like we're not trying to be like that. And so I think while some things like a message queue are perfect for durable objects, I also think we're working really hard on supporting your current databases as best as possible. So what exactly are Cloudflare pages and how do they differ from workers or maybe they're not at all similar? Just, uh, no, that's a good question. Out, yeah. yeah, so a little bit of like the history. So we like launched workers and workers like a primitive, right? You can do anything you want with it. And so then one thing that people wanted to do was like build a blog with it. Um, and so then we're like, okay, well, we made this thing called workers sites. And so worker sites is just workers. It's exactly what I described earlier. It's workers, but on the build step, we go through and we take all of your things in your post directory and we stick them in a KV store and then it generates a router. That works great. Um, but then it's still a little bit like weird when all these other competitors have these like beautiful kind of one click solutions for static sites. And we're out here like, okay, run this command line and then you know set up this and all this stuff. So we sort of packaged it up into this product called uh, Cloudflare Pages where um, works very similarly to Netlify. So you like link it through to your GitLab or your GitHub URL, um, and then boom, it deploys to a unique page site and you can grab a custom domain. All that stuff's great. But what's special about it, going back to the beginning of our talk, is that um, once you are now in with your custom domain into the DNS, 
that pages application is just one click away from all of our existing Cloudflare optimizations. So like if you want to just move your site over to pages, then you're just one click away from Broadly, one click away from uh, WebP image support. You know what I mean? You can just start adding all of these things, DDoS protection, uh, CAPTCHA, you know, all of this stuff, bot management. So it's really Cloudflare pages is a very direct kind of like apples to apples competitive competitor to like kind of the Netlify uh, workflow. Um, but our thinking behind it is that it's like a cool way of moving static sites into the Cloudflare ecosystem where they can easily take advantage of some of the more advanced features too. And do you have um, like kind of the deep integration with GitHub where you can build a preview on each, like for each branch and some of those really nice convenience features that, that Netlify has? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a gigantic fan of Netlify. I like love their stuff. I know you have, have had them on a lot before. Like I mm-hmm. think their product is amazing. So yeah, I think we try for a lot of that main feature parity. So each uh, commit generates a unique URL. Those unique URLs stay alive. You can, you know, configure your build pipeline to commit certain branches to generate URLs, but not replace, like all that stuff we offer. Uh, we offer all that stuff as well. So it seems like Cloudflare is doing a lot now kind of in the video uh, hosting and streaming space. So can you tell us about some of those uh, tools that have come out recently? Yeah, this is a space I'm really excited about. Like for a little bit of like backstory, both when I was at Twitter and when I was at Adobe, we started getting really into video and it is very technically difficult work. Like once you want to start getting into like streaming and like, um, you know, managing different file formats and trying to eliminate latency. And so at both of my previous jobs, we ended up hiring a pretty huge amount of engineers that we were trying to get folks from you know, Netflix and Twitch and, you know, all these companies, because it's it's very difficult to get right. And people expect extreme quality these days because of Netflix and Twitch and things like that. So I'm really excited about this. So we, this, like our kind of stream, like our, our video platform, Cloudflare Stream is really trying to just sit behind the scenes. Like it's not a product for, it's, it's like a B2B product. So it's really aimed at folks who want to make their own video applications without having to learn about like all these formats and transcoding and all of this stuff. And so like at its kind of simplest, it has APIs for um, for starting a stream from a web client, for streaming that out to people via unique URL, uh, for restreaming it if you want to broadcast it to YouTube or Twitch at the same time. Uh, and then after you're done streaming for processing the videos, giving you metadata on them and then giving you your own API to kind of serve those videos. So for our last innovation week, I built uh, a demo, which I can add, I can link after the show, um, was just kind of how to do it. It's like a simple dashboard. It's all built on workers um, with some KB, some durable objects. And it just shows like you have an admin section, which uses another one of our products, Cloudflare Teams, to kind of regulate access. And if you go into the admin, you can stream. It turns to videos. You can kind of play with everything that you would need if you wanted to build either your own kind of streaming platform like YouTube or Twitch, or even just like a internal education site where you have learning videos and track analytics and stuff like that. And so we try to offer all the hard parts bundled and then give you as much configuration over like the UI, the video player, like all of that stuff is like not really, we're not trying to brand like if you would embed a YouTube video and it would have YouTube at, like we're not doing anything like that. We're just like a very behind the scenes handling the video stuff. So I think it's really cool. I think it's like the first time in my career I would even consider working on a, a video application because it's gotten a lot easier now if you use right. something like stream you don't have to learn about uh, quite as much stuff yeah no very cool so uh, overall um what are you most excited about 
in the, the next year, you know, to the extent that you can share kind of anything on Cloudflare's roadmap or just general themes that, that the company is working on. Um, yeah, what, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because Cloudflare is very different than anywhere else I've worked where we're, we're often a behind the scenes company. Like we're like, it's not necessarily about like me using Cloudflare's CDN. It's about trying to get big clients. And even sometimes like stream, the stream product is really interesting because we're, we're almost positioning ourselves like we'll make a thing and then you can use that thing to make your own video platform that then you charge for, right? Like, and then we'll just be behind the scenes. So I think the thing that's interesting about Cloudflare is like we seem, we're seemingly obsessed with primitives. Like we like to build these building blocks that everyone can use. You know, we use them ourselves to build the next thing. Um, but what I think is really cool about this year and next year is like, I'm really starting to finally see the kind of like pieces all coming together. Um, like, whereas opposed to like workers, but then you're going to need to go find your own data store solution. You're going to need to find your own domain registrar, your own, you know, I'm starting to see like, whoa, like you can really easily build a SaaS startup just on Cloudflare. Uh, and we really make it a lot easier. So I think one thing I'm looking forward to is like as a developer advocate, being able to tell that story. And be like, look, I made, you know, I made my own, you know, YouTube.com just off of Cloudflare services, or like now I made my own e-commerce store, like stuff like that. Um, but I'm, then I'm get really a big kick when I read. We often reach out to folks and have them write for our blog with stories about how they use our services, and I really love seeing that. So I think more and more we're well positioned to be like a pretty big player in this, like building your SaaS space. Like you think about Cloudflare, I'm really excited to see the cool stuff that people build on top of it. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. Um, this has been fascinating to, to hear about all of the new Cloudflare tools and some of the the uh, kind of philosophy behind what Cloudflare does and why they do it. So really appreciate you joining the podcast today um, and uh, hope to speak to you again soon. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Log Rocket.